Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Sarah, partner at ByFounders, a 110 million euro early stage community-powered founders-led VC fund. Sarah is an entrepreneur at heart with experience from a range of tech startups and has also worked as a management consultant at McKenzie and Company and led the global strategy implementation at Danksky Bank. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Sarah, welcome to the European VC. It's awesome to have you with us today. How is everything? Thank you so much. I'm very good, thank you. I am based in a very cold Stockholm as we speak, uh, but super excited and it's such a pleasure to be here. To those that don't know who Sarah is, give us a quick rundown. How the hell did you end up in this wonderful world of venture? We need to kind of go back in time uh, because... I grew up in a tiny town four hours north of Stockholm in Sweden, where I grew up under very simple circumstances. So the fact that I'm sitting now as partner of a venture fund, I I think no one would have guessed the first 20 years of my life. But yeah, so my story is uh, mainly based on the fact that I've put in the hours of hard work. I started working when I was nine years old, got my first official job when I was 14. So I flipped burgers at McDonald's for five years and worked as a home help for three years, changing diapers on elderly and worked on the factory floor of a plastic production company. So just a lot of hours (laughs) uh, working hard. And then when I was 17, I had this huge realization about the fact that you can also make money by being what's so-called an entrepreneur. I started a project that had nothing to do with cool tech startups, uh, but I started a dancing school for kids with low self-esteem. So I had 80 kids coming four days a week. I had two employed dance teachers. It was just such an aha moment. From there on, kind of my love for entrepreneurship began. And then it went fast. Started the largest network for young entrepreneurs in Sweden, worked with a couple of tech startups, one called MyCube, in Singapore, another one called Fandom in New York, worked a lot with social businesses, uh, spent some time in Bangladesh with that. And then I also ended up on the dark side for a few years. I spent a few years at McKinsey and and at a bank, and then finally found my way back to the startup ecosystem when I joined ByFounders about three and a half years ago. Consulting is definitely more the dark side than uh, venture investing. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Uh, I'm uh, happy that it only lasted for four years. I, I mean, of course, super happy about those years, but not to the place where I belong. No, I think, and, and I think that goes for most good venture investors. <laughs> so, Sarah, tell us a bit about this migration story from being, you know, an average Joe or whatever we call that, average Jane in Sweden, to then realizing that you can build an entrepreneurial journey for yourself, then joining into the consulting industry, and then into venture. What would you say has been like the most pivotal? you know, realization for your venture, the way that you invest as a VC in that journey? I mean, the first pivotal moment was, of course, when I was 18, 19 years old. And 
realized that this network that I built that became the largest one in Sweden back then, this was in 2009, when I realized how extraordinary the people were in that ecosystem, I think that was most probably the first pivotal moment where I was like, this is the community where I feel that I belong. You know, Andreas, very well how the Nordics uh, works. And sadly, going above and beyond and being a little bit crazy is not what is uh, appreciated. It's uh, the Swedish word lagom, when you just need to do everything kind of average. That's the preferred uh, ways of working. And I think the entrepreneurial ecosystem was like the first place where I could spend time uh, where doing something extra actually was appreciated and not the other way around. So in Denmark, we've got almost a similar word and it's funny. And I think actually, David, you've also pitched in and said, well, in Portugal, we kind of have a similar attitude to things. And I think that we each have our own names and words for it in our countries in Europe, but it's really a European thing, right? But Sarah, let's go to the uh, story of Five Founders then. You joined by Founders and then tell us a bit more about why did you choose by Founders and why was that the perfect place for you to land? But also tell us the story of by Founders. When I had finished my years in, as a consultant and at a bank and I took an MBA at, at INSEAD with a stint at Wharton, then I knew that I wanted to go into VC. I knew that was the place where I could have the best opportunity to achieve what I wanted, which is mainly to create as many jobs as possible. And I thought that the skill set that I had at that point in time, knowing both the startup side and kind of a little bit more on the uh, investor side, that would be helpful. So I knew I wanted to go into venture, but I really wanted to join a venture fund that challenged the industry as it looked today. And I know for a long time in Silicon Valley, it's been the, a founder's market. I mean, founders have been in the driving seat. And only five years ago, that was not the case in Europe and particularly not in the Nordics. And it was just such a shame. So I talked to quite a lot of uh, venture funds and I, I did quite a lot of research and every fund said the same thing, which was, we're super founder friendly. You know, we're doing everything for the founders. And then when I asked, oh, can you, you know, give me some examples of how you do that? Answers were so vague. <laughs> but by founders' answer was not at all vague. They're like, yeah, so we started uh, our fund as, as a challenger fund uh, with founder compassion kind of at the core of what we do. Uh, one example of that is that we removed all downside protection from our term sheets. We have the most founder-friendly term sheets you can find on the market. And we publish those online on our website so everyone can see. So if we're not saying the truth, then anyone can come back at us and, and kind of point that out for us. And I was like, all right, here's a fund that might walk the talk. They also, on the topic of kind of supporting portfolio companies, everyone of course says that we're all in there to support our portfolio companies. But unless you are Andresen Horowitz or any of the multi-stage funds with a lot of management fee where you can employ crazy big platform teams, it is quite naive to think that a team of 10 people can add tons of value to 70 portfolio companies. So the, when Buy Founders then told me that, yeah, we've built the fund together with a group of about 50 of the most experienced founders and operators from the Nordics and the Baltics, uh, they've invested in our fund without paying any fees, but in return, they have signed a pledge that they need to spend time with helping our portfolio companies. I just also saw like, okay, here's another thing that they've taken fee off their plate <laughs> that could go into their pockets to ensure that that is 
given back to the founders uh, in the portfolio. So those are a couple of the things that made me just excited and ready to take a risk of joining a fund only a year and a half into the first fund instead of joining one of the established funds that have been around for a long time. Obviously, that which you just said is kind of, you know, obvious then, okay, this is the cause of the name. <laughs> this is why by founders is called by founders. But tell us a bit more about that. And also you said it, that's two of the examples. I'd love to, you know, hear your whole framework for how by founders access, you know, someone who really lives up to the name. So the story of the fund is that back in 2016, Eric and Tommy, two serial entrepreneurs and angel investors decided that, you know, let's take on this. Uh, both of them and all their friends have been trying uh, to raise capital from the Nordics and more specifically from Denmark uh, without succeeding. And if you look at Danish unicorns, which actually are a lot compared to the size of the country and the population, Denmark has a lot of unicorns. The issue is that almost none of them have been able to raise capital from their home turf. So almost all of them have had to go to the US to raise capital. But if you just quickly compare that to Sweden, where Spotify and Settle and King, et cetera, have been able to raise money from Swedish venture funds early in the process, when they then grow big and have beautiful IPOs and exits, that capital goes back into the Swedish ecosystem and that makes the Swedish ecosystem thrive. But when that's not the case in Denmark, that just means that all these amazing successes doesn't really benefit Denmark as a country, which really is a shame. So they decided, let's go out and raise a dedicated pre-seed seed fund to invest at early stage uh, in our home turf. So across the Nordics and the Baltics. And uh, they, without any track record whatsoever from uh, the world of VC, they were able to raise a hundred million euro first fund. <laughs> which was pretty unheard of then. But of course, this was because it wasn't just the two of them. It was this group of collective, like where the whole community of experienced founders came together and said, this is what needs to be done. We need to create a fund that has founder common passion and community kind of at the core of everything. So yeah, uh, they were able to raise the fund and then first close in December 2017. And then a year and a half later, I joined the fund. Uh, it was a very small team and very much still a startup at that point in time. In uh, July of 2021, so a year and a half ago, we had the first close of our second fund, uh, where I also stepped in as uh, the third partner. So today we are three partners at Five Founders, and we have a, an amazing team of 12 people, and we uh, invest at, as I said, pre-seed seed stage, we many times, most of the times take lead or, or co-lead. And we have a special focus in our second fund on impact. And I can talk a lot about what we mean with that. I was actually going to ask exactly that type of question in the sense, you know, going from fund one to fund two. And you said, you know, it's, it's a beautiful story in the sense of, as you said, right, two guys start this no track record and manage to raise that size of a fund and that type of, like it's, it is an amazing story, but it is also a story that I am certain is rifled with learnings and also oh, failures. Yeah. It's part of the game, right? Oh, uh, yeah. No GP likes to admit to it, but all, all LPs know it, right? So I'd love to at least professionalize the LPs. I'd love to ask, you know, from your side at least, and, and also from what you managed to see with the other partners and the firm as a whole, you know, core learnings and how that informed fund two strategy. And then that I think is a perfect segue to us talking about what does impact aware mean, right? Yeah. But let's start with the learnings first. I mean, 
we could probably spend a couple of days only on the, on the learning side here, right? But a, a few main learnings. So it was really, really difficult for them to raise the first fund. Uh, it took almost two years to raise the first fund, meaning that the first close was only a quarter of the fund size. And when you, they had 27 million euros instead of 100 million euros to deploy, you can imagine what that meant for the type of tickets that you could, like the type of size of investments that you could do. So many of the first investments that we did as a fund ended up not giving us enough ownership because we simply did not know if we would be able to raise more money. And that meant that we had to then buy up more expensive later in order to get the ownership that we wanted in those amazing startups that we backed at a very early stage, but we didn't have the fund size to give them all the money that we wanted. So that's like a huge part. And I mean, I can talk also for a long time about portfolio modeling, but for the <laughs> second fund, there was a lot of learnings. Let me ask you something, Sarah, because that is actually a super interesting topic. We've had some uh, kind of private conversations with GPs about this topic that I find super interesting is like fund modeling. You know, there is the fund model that you do when you start fundraising. There's a fund model that you do whilst you're fundraising. There's the fund model that you execute on at first close, which is completely different from the actual fund model, right? And the process of doing that is actually quite complex and hard for many GPs because there's a lot of resources and good resources on how to build your fund model. There's no resources on how to adapt and evolve your fund model during the lifetime and considering what you just said. So first close of a quarter. So what the fuck do I do now? Do Do I decrease my stake? Do I decrease number of portfolio companies do I do as you guys and buy at a higher price later? So I'd love to hear a bit about you know those reflections because you ended up opting for the latter, but you could have gone with just saying, that's it, that's done. Let's, let's focus on doing more deals with the right stake, right? Yeah, no, and there is no right or wrong answer here. And I could also pretend to say that all the decisions we made in that time was based on a very rational uh, <laughs> explanation. And in reality, that's, Uh, just not the case. However, there are some core principles, right, that we believe in, um, such as the power law of VC, uh, that I don't think we need to spend too much time on, because I believe many of your guests have already uh, talked a lot about that. But it also means that we knew that we needed to find the right balance between having enough shots on goal in regards of ensuring that we do get at least a couple of opportunities for a fund returner in our fund. And we know that the optimal is somewhere between 70 and 100 companies in a portfolio. We know that was on one side. And then on the other side, we have our whole value prop, which is that we are very hands-on. We are there for our portfolio companies. We're there day and night if there's anything. And you know we bring in our collective to truly support them. And we needed to find like where is the best middle ground between these two things, because we do not believe in a very concentrated portfolio because we simply don't think that's the math that works in venture. But we also did not want to be kind of a spray and pray investor. So we knew that like around the 35 companies in each fund was kind of where we wanted to land. And that meant that we took the decisions we did in our first fund of buying up in some companies instead of just continuing to invest in more companies, because we knew if we were going much more beyond that, we would dilute the value that we could bring to each of our portfolio companies. So like, if that is our North Star uh, that we're trying to ensure to have the balance of, then all the other decisions kind of fall into place based on that. I love that reply. Core principles, also the core assumptions. And if DLPs and yourselves believe in that, you know, 
it's obvious, right? If you don't, well, that's fine. This is not for you. Exactly. I interrupted you there. You're going over the learnings and how that informs fun too. And also this new impact awareness that you guys now have as more central. I can be super honest about the fact that I've spent quite a lot of my time trying to figure out how we can deploy capital in a responsible way. This is, goes back also to my history of spending time in Bangladesh with social businesses and impact investing and, and all of this, right? But I'm also very harsh because I look at data and I know what the deal flow look like in Europe. There's no part of me that thinks that there's room for another large-sized impact fund. So I am uh, harsh, but I'm also a big believer. And then uh, when I joined by founders, I started really looking at uh, our first fund portfolio. And it's clear, almost all of our top performers are companies that actually are on a strong mission to drastically improve either the society, so people's health or similar, or climates or the planet. I was like, this cannot be a coincidence. This, this simply cannot be a coincidence and, and started really spending time. So I spent three years now talking to over 60 venture funds, both impact funds and non-impact funds. I have uh, probably read uh, most of the reports uh, out there to try and kind of wrap my head around what should our position be if we want to maximize financial returns, maximize the impact we have on the world and just simply maximize for feeling proud of what we do when we go to bed at night. And that has led to what we call now impact awareness, where we actively are out in fund to looking for companies that want to create a better tomorrow. And I mean, we all, I think, understand the underlying reasons for why they are performing better, right? Like it's easier for them to recruit top talent, regulations goes for them instead of against them, consumer demand is on the rise instead of a decline. I mean, the long list of reasons, I think, are, are pretty clear. So yeah, we've now raised our second fund, which is a 110 million euro fund. We ha are saying that we want 100% of our portfolio to be investments in responsible founders. And I can talk about how we, what we put into the word responsibility. And then we have a target, and it's a very ambitious target. And you know, we're already now seeing that it might be difficult for us to reach it, but we want to, you know, really try to get to the stars here. And that is to have about half of our portfolio being impact startups. So where the product itself of the company has a positive impact on people or the planet. So we differentiate between the way you run your company, which is around responsibility and ESG, and then the impact that your product has. So that's what we've set out to do. We're now 17 portfolio companies in, and I can tell you it's, it's really difficult. The deal flow is not as good as we want, but we're working hard every day to try and get there. When you look at the winners in your portfolio and then conclude, okay, there's a common thread here, and then you then double down on that for the next fund and put it into your investment focus and deal flow then seems more thin. Are you then thinking, hmm, is there something slightly off with our thesis? Do we need to adjust something there? Or do you rather say, Ah, it actually seems like we've just got a very good filter now that ensures that the deals that you're looking at are the deals that are the relevant. And yes, there's less of those and that's perfectly fine. Yeah, there's so many parts to that. So I think in regards of us setting up our strategy, like we have a 180 page deck with numbers and both qualitative and quantitative reasoning for this strategy. So it goes way beyond anecdotal kind of logic from learning from our first fund, even though that was 
you know, of course, a, a huge inspirational part for us. So just to have that clear, what we are seeing is that we are not changing our plan. Like we, we still very much believe in what we've, like our thesis and what we've set out to do. But we are a venture fund and we are around to ensure that we optimize for the financial returns to our LPs. And therefore, we just need to be vulnerable and open and honest and transparent when we, over time, might meet challenges because there are trade-offs from time to time. So in this scenario where we are right now, where sadly during the last year, we've seen a very high correlation, negative correlation, when markets downturn with market downturn and an in, like a decrease of impact investments and, and potential impact startups to invest in. It's only about 17 to 20 percent of our deal flow that are impact startups. So if you then think of having a 50 percent as a target, there's quite a big discrepancy between those two numbers. We do believe that we improve our probability of better financial returns to invest more in that. But should we invest twice as much or even more, like two and a half X as much? We don't know. We're still learning and we're still adopting and nothing we do is set in stone. But what we are doing is that we're fully transparent and hopefully within a few weeks, we'll also publish our whole impact awareness strategy and open source it with all the tools that we've built internally, because we hope that this is just a starting point for all venture funds in Europe and, and across the world to start moving in this direction. And hopefully there is not such a thing in five to 10 years where there's impact funds on one side and you know traditional funds on the other side, but rather that there's like a big gray space in between. I don't recognize by founders as you know an impact fund right away in my mind. That I imagine is also the cause of the, uh, <laughs> the issue uh, for you. Am I right in saying that, that, that you haven't communicated it that heavily yet? No, for sure. I mean, we're not a pure impact fund, right? Which is, means that our brand is not tied to impact in the same way as as pure impact funds are. However, we sit down on a quarterly basis and go through all of the investments done in Europe. We actually just published that, that as well, um, at the state of the new Nordics. And every quarter we look at, okay, have we missed anything here? Because that's, I guess, your question, Andreas. Is there maybe amazing impact deal flow out there that we are missing simply because our brand in that space is not strong enough? And so far, there's not one single impact investment done in the last three years in the Nordics or Baltics that we have missed at pre-seed, seed or series A stage. So yes, 100%, we hope that with time and we're still, you know, an early startup. I mean, we've only been around for five years as a fund and as an impact of our fund for about a year. So we know we have such a long way to go to improve our brand. But we do believe that our sourcing machine that we have uh, set up internally uh, actually cover a lot. So yeah, and we, we are able to win a lot of investments in the impact space simply because when we have conversation with founders, they realize that we truly genuinely care about this and that we now have built a toolbox that can help them uh, to ensure that they can scale their companies responsibly. And that's something that founders today who are values driven and mission driven really appreciate. So in one-on-one -on -one conversations, it's good, but from a branding perspective, we have a long way to go. Can't wait to see that report. I can't wait to see every bit of that toolbox. So that's going to be super cool. Before we go to the quickfire, I have to ask you, the By Founders Collective is something that, you know, is really 
to me, at least a hallmark in both Nordic VC, but also in, in European VC. And I think that it's one of the most important structural setups. And you were really pioneers of it. So I'd love to ask you to dive a bit deeper on it and tell us also a bit about the operational machine behind running it, because it sounds great, but it's also a lot of work. <laughs> yes, it is so much work. <laughs> and I mean, you, if anyone knows how hard work it is to build a community. So um you probably have even more learnings than we have here. But yeah, most venture funds do work actively with their network. I mean, that's one of the key uh, value adds that you can provide your portfolio companies with a, a strong network amongst other investors, amongst other founders and, and, and operators. However, the methodology of that is either that there's this big informal network that is very difficult for founders to understand and get access to. So it's this like black box of potential value add, but you as a founder have no idea how to actually leverage that and, and take advantage of that. Many venture funds have created like venture partner setups, and then you are super engaged in those, for example, deals that you source or whatever uh, agreement that you have with the funds. We kind of took that and flipped that on its head, <laughs> where we say, in order to create a long-term commitment across our portfolio from experienced founders and operators, we want them to invest in our fund. So in any investment we do, they actually have a part of it. Then we wanted to ensure, of course, that this was an amazing opportunity for experienced founders and operators. So we said, if we remove all the fees, so no management fee and no carry. So whatever upside there is, we'll go 100% back to them, a pro rata to their ownership of the fund. If we do that, then we are also in a position where we can have expectations on these founders and these operators. So we created this buy founders pledge and it's fairly simple. What it says is ethos should be aligned. Like you should always treat founders with the utmost uh, respect that they deserve. We want you to help us with deal flow and ensure that we can invest in the best founders out there. We want to be able to call you up when we evaluate opportunities and, and potential investments that you might know more about than we do. But then the absolutely most important thing is we want you to be there for our founders and support them. And that could be either through taking board seats, representing by founders as a fund, where we are just in the board as an observer, really putting the collective member front and center. And we have so many of our portfolio companies having that set up today. It can also be collective members coming in and helping in a short stint. Like next week in Stockholm, we're having a collective member flying in to support one of our portfolio companies in a full day workshop, really trying to get to product market fit. And this person has been through a lot of pivots before in, in his journey, so he can help there. So like the setup can look very different. We're having a base camp in March where we're inviting all our portfolio company founders from our second fund and so many of our collective members that are experts in growth or marketing or finance or impact. And then you can have that collective shared experience in person and really create that community between experienced founders and new founders. So that's kind of the core of the uh, By Founders Collective and, and how we use it. And it's just, we would not be where we are today if it, if it wasn't for the By Founders Collective. And it's amazing to see how these experienced founders simply just want to pay it forward. Like they want to give the new generation of founders the experience that they did not get when they started their companies. Could you share a bit about the operations that it requires? So how do you think about it internally? Do you have someone who is 
dedicated to running that program or by Founders Collective? Do you, do, is it something that's on the mind of everyone inside the firm, always front and center? Can you tell me a bit about how you think of it structurally and also process-wise? For sure. So we both have a dedicated platform team where we have two full-time people working only with ensuring that our portfolio companies get as much value as they possibly can from our collective. Because it is, as you say, it's a big machinery that needs to come together. And we're a team of 12, so it's a quite a big portion of our team. And beyond that platform team, we also have everyone on the investment team incentivized to really like create magic with the collective. So everyone on the Bifunders team, for example, have a part of their bonus tied to ensuring that the value add that our portfolio companies get from our collective is in place. Everyone on the investment team are champions for some people in the collective, ensuring that that relationship is stayed strong. So it's really a full team effort to ensure that we get as much as we possibly can out of that. And we are far from where we want to be. There's a lot to improve in how we work with the uh, By Founders Collective. But I feel like we're at least at a good starting point. This is stuff that's been going on in the U.S. for a long time. Many funds have this type of thing going on behind them. We have less of that in Europe. We're seeing more and more. It's amazing to just peel a bit off here and see how you're doing it. But David, I'll let you take the mic now. Sarah, as you know, we end every episode with a quick fire round. And now is the time. I'm going to ask you a couple of quick answer questions. 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? I am. First question of the quick fire round. What areas, technologies or sectors excite you the most, but that you find other people around you not really feeling that excited about? Beyond the fact that I have uh, quite a lot of mainstream areas of interest, such as climate and generative AI and verticalized SaaS and whatnot, I think the weirdest interest is what many would call potentially off-putting body fluids. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is and this is super strange, but for example, looking at uh, period blood and feces. So um, yes, I'm talking about poop here in this podcast. But you know, the opportunities that you have in analyzing these bodily fluids are insane. Um, yeah, so like everything from non-invasive blood testing through menstrual blood to gut microbiome analysis from feces, and all of this I think can help us save a lot of lives. So I think that's pretty cool. I would agree. And thank you for talking about poop in this podcast. I think that is not the first, but the second time it happens. That's ah, always fun. Good. <laughs> but but I think it is the first time that a guest introduces the topic rather than Andreas introducing okay, the topic. So okay, good. That is the first. That is the first. Second question of the quick fire, Sarah. What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned in venture so far? I think the most counterintuitive thing is that founder-friendly terms will actually lead to better financial returns for a fund many times. Uh, I think uh, VCs are uh, very uh, you know, experienced many times and think that by putting a lot of downside protections, such as liquidation preferences and anti-dilution rights and things like that, that will help them to improve their financial returns. And what I've seen is just the complete opposite. Just to put this into perspective, if you have an early stage founder running a company that is not performing that well, you mean this is not going to be your fund returner. But if this founder knows that every like waking minute that he or she spends on getting some money for his company or her company, that that money would go directly only to investors and nothing to her or his own pocket, the probability of this person making that effort is extremely low. But if that person knows that whatever money that comes out on the other side will be fairly and evenly split amongst all shareholders, trust me this person will work so hard to try and save what's left of the company. And therefore, I just think that 
founder-friendly terms are better for financial returns of a fund. I would definitely agree, and I would also be able to go on a rant with a couple of data that we shared on one of our substacks, the private one, and I will not, but I completely agree with you, Sarah. Over a beer one time, David. <laughs> exactly. A beer, coffee, or wine, whatever you yes. prefer. Third and final question, Sarah. What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are fundraising in these troubled times? I mean, it's difficult. <laughs> uh, I think the most obvious is, of course, to ensure that your value prop stands out. We would not have been able to, to raise by founders funds unless we had the by founders collective and we had founder compassion at the core of everything we do. But maybe the more nerdy answer is to ensure that your portfolio model and scope makes sense. I mean, sophisticated LPs, they know that if you say you're going to build a 100 million euro only Danish fund focused on fintech, <laughs> I mean, there's simply not enough fintech deal flow in Denmark to deploy a 100 million euro fund. So just really think through that your thesis and your portfolio model works with what the reality looks like. And therefore, in my opinion, if you have a geographic scope such as us, New Nordics, there is not an opportunity out there to also have an industry focus. You need to be industry generic in order to have enough deal flow to tap into. Couldn't agree more on that. And I also have to say that that's definitely one of the places where we see a big difference in quality of emerging managers. Some are very mindful of this and others definitely less so. I know from conversations with very sophisticated LPs that that's also where they are kind of saying, okay, this is the difference between someone who thinks they can do venture and someone who can actually do venture. So very good of you to point that out. Thanks a million for joining us, Sarah. Thank You've you. been amazing. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to leave with a final say, which is that I know that we share a love for Isomer and we share a love and passion for emerging managers. So I just wanted to kind of point that out in the end here that Isomer and Chris and many others from their team was a part of our first fund and having ecosystem heroes like that that makes emerging managers like us a possibility is something that makes such a big difference. Thank you for uh, having me. Thank you for working closely with Isomer and many other emerging managers and I truly think you're making a difference. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. 